Interstate Batteries offers a wide variety of batteries for your everyday needs. Stop into one of their thousands of retail locations and talk with a battery specialist about batteries for your truck, trail cameras, and even those weird batteries for your rangefinder. Interstate Batteries even offers cell phone repair in certain locations. For more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. You're listening to the Average Conservationist Podcast, brought to you in partner with 2% for Conservation. 2% for Conservation's mission is to create an alliance of businesses and individuals that ensure the future of hunting and angling by committing their time and dollars to fish and wildlife. 1% of your time plus 1% of your money equals 2% for conservation. 2% helps businesses and people pair with conservation causes to support things that fit what they care about. Whether you're into fishing, hunting, or just getting outdoors, 2% can help you not only start giving back to wildlife, but get certified for it. Getting 2% certified means you've made the same commitment as popular brands like Sitka, Stone Glacier, and Seek Outside in giving at least 1% of your time and dollars back to wildlife. But it's not just for outdoor companies. Breweries, contractors, coffee roasters, and even piano repair companies have earned 2% certification and stand out as leaders in their community for doing so. Businesses that are committed to conservation deserve your business when you shop. Learn more about 2% for Conservation at fishandwildlife.org. That's fishandwildlife.org. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Average Conservationist Podcast, and I'm your host, Marcus Ewing. Today on the podcast, I am joined by Clint Campbell, and Clint is the owner and founder of 2% Certified Skull Brew Coffee. Uh, Clint and I really get to have a great conversation. We really spend the first half or so um, of our chat just kind of telling some hunting stories, talking some tactics and some strategies a little bit, uh, really the the approach uh, that Clint takes when he's out in the woods and some some new things that he's been trying um, really trying to just kind of round out, um, his hunting style with, uh, as many styles as possible, uh, and really trying to become, uh, as adaptable as he can, uh, for every situation. Uh, <clears throat> Clint, uh, lives in, in Pennsylvania and has the opportunity to hunt a lot of different, uh, public land there. So he needs to be, uh, very versatile, very versatile in his approach, um, you know, we also get to, to spend the second half of the conversation talking about skull brew and conservation and, you know, really the whole idea for, for starting uh, skull brew coffee was because he had reached a point in his life where, you know, growing up in the outdoors and hunting, um, he knew that he had been taking from the land for a really long time. Um, and he wanted to come up with a way to, to give back on a, a regular and a consistent basis. And he explains it really well and talks about how he, he reached a point where it became more about the people he was hunting with or, or more about other people um, than it did about himself. And I think that that's a great approach that when you hit a certain point, uh, whether it's just, you know, wanting to share those experiences with other people uh, or wanting uh, to see them uh, experience a lot of those firsts, um, or it's just because you want to you want to give back and you want to make sure that all the things that you've been able to enjoy up to this point 
um, you know, maybe your kids or, or just other people uh, coming behind you have those same opportunities. So that was really uh, the whole genesis uh, for starting Skull, Skull Brew Coffee. Um, you know, Clint talks about uh, the approach that they took when it came to giving back and, and who they decided to give back to. Um, I'll kind of, I'll let you listen in and, and hear um, Clint's explanation, but uh, it was really great. So episode 103 with Clint Campbell of Skull Brew Coffee. Uh, enjoy. Uh, before that, though, I want to tell you about our partners over at Go Hunt. Um, Go Hunt recently launched their Explore membership for their uh, their with their mapping system, their Explore membership, uh, and right now they are running their Memorial Day special. Uh, so it's called the 50-50-50 deal. So what that means is, for fifty dollars, the membership you're going to get access to all fifty states, uh, and you're also going to get fifty points to use towards their gear shop. So use code TAC50 uh, when you check out. And when you get that, um, then you're going to be able to um, pick up um, the Explore membership as well as um, 50 points to the gear shop. So head over to GoHunt.com. Check that out. Clint, welcome to the podcast, man. How's everything going today? Good, man. Uh, Can't complain. Got some decent weather here in Pennsylvania. Finally, we had a... uh... We had a freakishly hot snap, which was unnerving because I thought we were just going to skip right over that awesome part of like spring into summer where it's not really cold any longer, but it's not yet hot. So you can break out your shorts, but in the evening you might need like a long sleeve t-shirt and good fire pit weather. And it got up to like, I don't know, like 95 degrees this past weekend, but it settled back down today. So I was able to open up the windows, shoot my bow outside a little bit, get some outside time in. So uh, life is good for the moment. Yeah, no, that's a good day right there. Yeah, we had, so I mean, uh, you're in Pennsylvania, I'm in Michigan, so we're not too far apart. But yeah, we had kind of the same thing where we never really had a spring. We It just kind of got really hot really fast, and then it would kind of taper off a little bit. And today was a high of maybe like 60, but, you know, it was fairly mm. sunny out. So it was just, you know, I got some yard work done today. It was just kind of a, a beautiful spring day. So, yeah, nice. I can't complain. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like we're probably about a day behind you guys, because I think, if I'm not mistaken, maybe you guys had a little bit better weather yesterday, because tomorrow what's coming in is that kind of getting back down into the 60s type of type of situation, so just a little cooler. I'm not going to complain. I love that weather. It, it, and actually, it's probably um, – well, I'll put it this way. I love it, and I hate it. I love it because I love that weather. Uh, I hate it because it gets me all jacked up for fall way too early. So, <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> so I'm like waking up in the morning, you know, before work, having my coffee, and I'll take the dog outside, and it'll be like 55 degrees. I'm like, oh man, this is great, great weather to be in a tree today, you know. And I'm like, yeah, still oh yeah. Away, so it's all right. It uh, keeps you motivated. I mean, not that necessarily any of us really need motivation come fall time, but uh, yeah, just to to put it front of mind. Uh, this early in the year, uh, there's nothing wrong with that. That's right. Well, I mean, at least this year, I'm actually ahead of the game. I got pretty much got all my trail cameras out, which is usually not the case. I was extra diligent this year, so got all of that done. Because usually in the summer, I'm the guy that's kind of scrambling, trying to finish up, getting everything done. And when it is Africa hot out, I'm usually the one out in the woods during that time period. So this year, I was like, you know what? I'm going to get everything done early. That way, when we do get those nasty, like just furnace blasts. Yeah, I'm going to be able to be like, you know, sipping a coldie at my house or maybe in my kayak on the lake or, or something anywhere, but being, you know, sweating in, in the, uh, in the timber, hopefully. Yeah, no, uh, 
<clears throat> the property that uh, that uh, I hunt here in Michigan. Yeah, we're the same way. So <clears throat> my brother, my brother-in-law, and I do do all the work uh, on our property. So you know, stands, trail cams, you know, any type of habitat work, all that stuff. And in order to get both of our schedules to to really coincide with each other, we we'll, especially like once June hits. I mean, it feels like we get like maybe two days a month, you know, where we can actually get out and get work done. And, you know, we may have that date planned two or three weeks in advance. And then as soon as that date comes, man, it's always a scorcher or it's an absolute downpour. So we we never seem to really uh, luck out. But yeah, the fact that you're that far ahead of the game, kudos to you, man, because I know, shoot, last year we were, gosh, we were right coming up to uh, Labor Day, which is usually like our drop dead. We want to be absolutely out of the woods by Labor Day. But I think it was like the week after we had to get in there and I think like hang another stand or two um, to really be ready. So hopefully yeah. we're not waiting until the last minute again this year. Yeah. I'm actually a little surprised I got as much done as I, as I did because, you know, I really kind of focused locally at the beginning of the off season and just for whatever reason, we just got like, I had, you know, just weird off the wall kind of, family obligations that, that would, that would pop up. And then the weekends I was free, it would rain or whatever the case was like the weather just wasn't cooperating. And then it finally started kind of getting a little bit better where I got freed up. And so I, there's a, there's a spot that's like two and some change close to two and a half hours away from my home that I had been scouting that I scouted last year. It's this big woods piece in the mountains. And I found some really good deer and I needed to get back there this year to kind of continue to do some, some leg work but it just holds snow a lot longer. So I had to kind of, had to kind of wait. So I just focused on everything that was local to me. So, with, you know, roughly within, you know, 45 minute drive kind of uh, type of thing, got all my scouting done and kind of all my cameras out. And then as soon as I had some free time and the, and the snow kind of broke in the mountains, I headed to the mountains and started getting those cameras out. And then I actually went up and spent a long weekend over the Turkey opener. Cause in PA, you can only hunt the first two weeks of Turkey season till noon. So I went up for, the mountains for the opener that way i could hunt saturday for the opener till noon then i scouted all the rest of the day on saturday no sunday hunting so scouted all day sunday and then uh hunted monday morning and did a little bit of scouting monday after i after i uh after i got done hunting at noon so i got my extra scouting in during the uh during essentially the turkey hunt so i was surprised because i that's usually like the last thing i get to take care of but this year i kind of knocked it out early and uh got a bunch of trail cameras hung and uh feel like uh feel like this is going to be hopefully a good year fingers crossed but i'm trying not to focus on white tails now because i do have a trip to idaho this year and i actually have trail cameras and started getting the first velvet elk pictures rolling in like this past week so i'm Ooh. getting jacked up on elk right now and then i'll i'll flip focus really quick to to white tails there in like mid-september yeah <clears throat> no that's uh that sounds like a, a pretty good little fall you got lined up for yourself there yeah. Yeah. It should be, it should be pretty good, man. It's, uh, you know, I haven't been out West in a, uh, in a couple of years. I have a good buddy who moved out there, um, a year ago, I guess like beginning of June, I guess is when he moved out there last year. Um, and, uh, you know, I just told him, I was like, Hey, I was like, next year I'll come out and we'll, we'll elk hunt together. And it, he's in Idaho and, um, you know, Idaho is one of those States where you just kind of luck of the draw. Like, you know, you just try to get in early and get, get your number in line and, hopefully you draw, you know, if, if, if that's what you really want to do. Right. And, uh, I lucked out and ended up drawing a tag and was able to get it in the unit that he lives in, uh, you know, where we wanted it uh, or the unit that I wanted to get. And, um, yeah, I mean, that was kind of, it was kind of, 
I had zero plan for it. I just, a buddy texted me. He's like, Hey, are you planning to go to Idaho this year? And I was like, yeah. He's like, Hey, it opened today. And I was like, Oh man, no way. I was like, I totally forgot about it. So I jumped online real quick and just like got my place in line to see if I could draw a tag. And, uh, yeah, I ended up getting a tag. And so my planning for my Idaho trip took me all of about 30 seconds. <laughs> so <laughs> Those it was just ones, really like, yeah, yeah. Some people, you know, um, impulse buy like a pack of gum at the grocery store. I impulse bought an Idaho bull elk tag. That's how, <laughs> that's how that, that's how that happened. Um, so <laughs> I did that. And then, uh, of course, you know, PA, uh, I'm really looking forward to, especially with that big woods piece. There's some really great deer on that, on that piece that I had, uh, had some inventory of last year and have a couple spots that I'm really excited about that I was getting daylight deer activity and just learned a lot more when I, I hunted it this, this late season and did some still hunting just to kind of stay on the ground and kind of try to pick some things apart. And then the last scouting sessions that I had, you know, I felt like I have a last year, it was really just kind of throwing a dart at a dartboard the days I spent up there hunting, just trying to learn some stuff. Um, this year I actually feel like I have a hunt plan um, walking into it that I kind of know, know where I need to be at different times of the season, I guess is one, is one way to put it. And then I'm still waiting to see if I draw a Kansas tag this year or not. I was in Kansas last year and had some great opportunities, just couldn't seal the deal. And so I'm going, I'm trying to go back to uh, avenge my, uh, my loss from last year. And I guess I'll find out here in like the next, uh, next couple of weeks, I think they announced the draw for Kansas. So if I get that tag, I'll go out to Kansas as well this year. Nice. Yeah. I actually, uh, I think I'm going to be hunting Pennsylvania this year for the first time. Right. Uh, yeah, so a previous uh, guest of the podcast, um, Jason Crichton, he uh, uh-huh. invited me. I mean, we uh, he has a podcast as well. So he came on mine uh, and then I was a guest on his. And we just, you know, one of those people who we just we just clicked really well, um, got along really well, uh, you know, through speaking a few different times there. And, yeah, he gave me the official invite uh, maybe a month ago or so. So kind of in the very early stages of, of planning. Um, I don't think I'm, I'm going to go in there with really any expectations um, from a buck standpoint. Um, the property mm-hmm. that him and his family own uh, is is pretty dense with uh, dough, he said. Mm-hmm. So I may mm-hmm. just think about enjoying the experience and trying to take a dough and, and take some meat home and just uh, gather some stories while I'm there. Nice. Yeah. That'll be awesome. And do you know what part of, uh, what part of Pennsylvania he's from? Nope. Nope. <laughs> nice. Okay. Nope. I was just curious uh, if it was in, in Western PA or Eastern PA. Cause I mean, look, there's, there's good deer anywhere anymore. Um, you know, people, I, I guess, you know, are sometimes surprised whenever, I don't share shell. I don't share trail camera pictures very often, and if I do, it's with you know very kind of few people. Um, and, and every now and then, I'll share one with somebody who you know maybe I'm meeting for the first time or whatever, and they're like, "Are those in Pennsylvania?" You know, because they're they they always hear horror stories about PA, and it's it's not Iowa and it's not Ohio, but there are certainly pockets in Pennsylvania that have have really good deer. So I'm you know no matter where you're at, you can, you can get into them. And if he has plenty of does there, man, if, I don't know what time of year you're going, but um, you know, the old saying where there's does, there'll, there'll be bucks. So, you know, oh. you might get a, might get an opportunity at a, at something that might surprise you. Put it that way, I guess. Right. Yeah. And now that I'm thinking about, it, I think he's in central PA. So I think he lives um, oh. in kind of the greater Pittsburgh area. Uh, but I think okay, his, yeah. their, their family's property, I want to say is North uh, of Pittsburgh, but, don't quote me on that because okay. I don't I don't remember exactly. But I do I do recall yeah that he's he's in the Pittsburgh area. Okay, yeah. I mean the western part of the state typically, you know, 
on average, I guess is how I'll say it, is on average probably better in terms of quality of, of bucks. Okay. Um, especially when you get out around like the Allegheny Mountains, uh, the Alleghenies yeah. and stuff like that. Uh, there's some great deer um, that, that come out of that every year. I have a couple of friends that hunt that, that, you know, kill some good bucks uh, there. You can get some, you know, you can find deer in, in, in that area that will rival things that you would see in some of the quote unquote big buck states. Difference is, is that they just might not be quite as plentiful. You know, yeah. I mean? like you'll definitely get, you know, your random, you know, 170 inch freak, you know, or a Boone and Crockett buck and stuff like that. Um, they, it certainly can, they, it, they can certainly be grown out there um, for sure. Uh, what you, and you can certainly see your 130s and 140s. You just won't see as many of those running around as you would say in Iowa or Ohio. You're just not going to see the, the density of them essentially. Um, but there's good deer there for sure, man. So you should have a blast. Yeah, no, I'm certainly looking forward to it. Um, yeah, I, I've just not had any opportunities uh, to really hunt out of state. Uh, you know, a couple of young kids, and it's just it's mm-hmm. hard to to get away for any extended period of time. Um, so no, I'm certainly looking forward to it. It's uh, should be a good time. Absolutely. Yeah, man. Yeah, that's that's always one of my favorite things to do is is to travel um, and and hunt. Uh, there's just something about it where. Um, I don't do a lot of planning. I guess I should preface it by saying that I don't do a lot of planning when I go out of state to hunt. Like kind of the Idaho trip, where it's just kind of like, yeah, I'll go to Idaho. I'll figure it out. <laughs> that's that's a lot of how I a lot of how I do it. Um, and it's somewhat uh, by design or on, or on purpose. Uh, I feel like whenever I go to these places, you know, uh, whenever I was in Iowa or wherever, that the less I know, sometimes whenever I go into to new places, the better off I am. Um, cause it, it forces me just to kind of read the woods and rely on woodsmanship. You know, I don't have, you know, cameras there. I don't really know a whole lot about the place. I have to be able to read maps and topography and try to make some smart decisions, you know, based on just, you know, those kind of, you know, e-scouting and, and understanding those things. And then it's, once I get there, then it becomes all about boots on the ground and, um, putting miles in and, and, and moving. I think that's the one big thing that like over the, the years that I've learned is that a lot of times people are afraid to move because they're, you know, afraid they're going to mess something up or miss out on something or whatever the case is. But I don't know anymore. I just kind of operate under the assumption of like, I don't know what the future is. So I don't know if I messed anything up or not. Um, but what I do know is that I'm sitting here and I feel like I'm in the wrong spot. So I need to move. And so I just started whenever that kind of thought creeps into my mind i just get down and i move and i just go try to find a place that i think is better um and in doing that i've had better encounters and just better hunts overall i've seen more mature deer than i've seen in years past once i kind of adopted that philosophy so and a lot of that was born just out of necessity from from traveling to places that i've just never been before you know when i went to kansas someone asked me you know, what's your plan? I was like, don't know. I was like, first time I'll see Kansas when I, is when I cross the state line. Like I've never been here before. You know, and I was like, so, um, you know, I was like, I don't have a plan. Uh, my plan is to figure, uh, my plan is I have a 14 days and, and my plan is to figure it out. You know, that's, that's really what it comes down to. Um, and that was a rad hunt. Cause that was a lot of spot and stock and glass. And it was just a lot of, you know, like 98% of it was all on the ground. And it was just something that I've not done a whole lot of other than Western hunting certainly haven't hunted whitetails a lot from the ground, you know, being from PA. Um, every now and then I will, but that was, you know, a, that was essentially a two week crash course on hunting from the ground. Um, and I loved it. Uh, you know, I'd prefer to hunt from the ground all the time now, if I could just, just 
because of the mobility and how quickly you can change your change your plan. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's certainly a benefit um, to to hunting from the ground. Is I mean, it's it's almost like turkey hunting in a way, right? Where you don't mm-hmm. like it or you know nothing's talking to you, just you know relocate. And I mean, obviously the the subtleties with which you need to move through the woods uh, are a little bit different with deer hunting and obviously playing the wind and and all that, but. Yeah, with a situation like that, like you said, you, you, you just need to trust your instincts, right? I mean, you mm-hmm. you know enough about topography, like you mentioned, you know, these terrain features, all these things on how deer typically or traditionally, whatever you want to say, tend to, to use them or move through them. And yeah, you just you gotta go with with what you've with what you've learned up to this point and, and hope that it pays off. Yeah. I mean, I, I think um that that approach you know i I guess the way i kind of framed it or categorized it it seems like it's kind of a blanket statement but but it's not really a blanket statement and and what i mean by that is that you kind of have to look at you know the parcel or what what you're hunting i guess you have to qualify it i guess is, is what i'm trying to say you know there were places that i would get to in kansas where i couldn't really walk through it because it was there was one draw to hunt that was it if you if i walked through that entire draw if there was anything in there, there wouldn't be anything in there anymore <laughs> type of thing, you know what I yeah. mean? Cause there's not really, there wasn't anywhere for anything to go. So, and those pieces out there are just kind of, I don't want to say they're small, but they don't hunt real, real big because it's a lot of CRP or cut crop field. And they might have like one, you know, crick bottom draw that runs through it that, that has the timber, but it's really kind of narrow and it might only be like 50 yards wide and, and it might only run for, you know, a mile or whatever the case is, right, from that section to the next section. Right. And in that case, it's like, yeah, you got to be a little bit more careful and choiceful. But in an area like that, that's when your glass becomes really important. And you try to find a spot and you just spend time behind the glass. You know, there were days out there that we just drove. Like, I would say we probably, I mean, there were two days in a row that I can remember that we just drove from the time we got in the truck in the morning until the time we got home at dark and we never, ever walked into the timber for two days straight it was really? just driving glass and trying to find trying to find deer you know what i mean just trying to glass up deer somewhere and that's a lot of what you have to do out there i mean because you can certainly go sit in a in a ditch somewhere you know in a draw um you know or a creek bottom or whatever and just say you know what i'm going to sit here for seven days and something decent i'm sure would walk by you at some point um you know i, I would guess uh, but that wasn't I mean, I can do that anywhere else that I hunt, <laughs> you know, I can go sit in a tree all, all day, every day, if I want to in Pennsylvania or Ohio or whatever, but Kansas just offers this really unique opportunity to hunt whitetails. Like I've never hunted them before. And so, you know, I, I really wanted to spot and stalk whitetails. Um, it's hard. Um, it, it's yeah. not an easy task. I mean, the guys from whitetail adrenaline make it look easy, uh, <laughs> but but, but it's not, you know, it, it, you know, I had a couple encounters that were kind of similar to kind of how they approach things. And, and it was funny cause it blew my mind that it actually worked. We glassed one on this kind of, it's not a ridge, but it was this, um, winter wheat field at the top of this like hill essentially. And, and we saw this buck chasing this doe and it was, a, it was a good buck, probably like 150 to 160. And we stopped the truck and we looked at the map real quick and it was like, I bet he's going to go to this draw that's down here to the South. And so we basically just got out of the truck and took off running. My buddy was with me. He was filming it and we took off running and 
just running through the woods like all we could run and looking at the map ever so often trying to figure out exactly where we were at. And we got to where we were like, all right, I think it's going to be here. Let's stop here. Stop here. And we got kind of tucked into some cedars. And I'm thinking in my mind, I'm like, there is no way in hell we're going to see that buck. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, it's counterintuitive to everything I know about deer hunting. Like running through the woods after a deer, there's no way we're going to see this deer. Right. And wouldn't you know it, about four minutes later, that doe came by and brought that buck by. And at like 20 yards and I was tucked in between these cedars and I could not see that deer until he got, until he was like almost past me. So oh, I, wow. I didn't get a shot. And, but it was my, it, I mean, it blew my mind because it was like, I never thought I would ever get an opportunity to what I refer to as Cherokee and a deer. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, yeah, I'm just going straight, you know, uh, native American style trying to run this thing down and it actually worked. Um, you know, and that was just something that was, uh, was foreign to me. And that was kind of the moment I was enjoying the hunt overall. Cause we spot and stalked one and had one bedded and we, we blew that opportunity that we, we moved too quick on that one. But it was in that moment there, that particular moment where I was like, all right, I love this. <laughs> I was like, I would come hunt this state every year if I could, just because that style of hunting is just so, so, so cool. So unique, so different. And it's actually kind of what got me jazzed about wanting to go back out West again. Well, yeah, when you're able to apply or kind of, I don't want to say, you're kind of integrating uh, the two styles, right? Where mm -hmm. you can use a lot of those Western tactics, a lot of the spot and stalking and glassing, but apply that to an animal that you know far better than some of the Western animals with a whitetail. Uh, yeah, it's kind of the best of both worlds because, yeah, there's not a lot of people, like you said, that are hunting whitetail uh spot and stock um but i think you know if if you're able uh to be successful uh when it comes to to that type of hunting with a whitetail i mean man there's the sky's the limit right in, in terms of of ways that you can can try to hunt them if you can you know be successful or really understand uh how to be effective in that approach yeah i mean that, that's the one thing that i you know as far as like a hunting style or whatever, I, I hate even kind of saying, saying that, but you know, I always try to pick something every year and, and get better at it and try to add some type of tool or trick to my bag, um, if you will. And, you know, one of the things I've wanted to do for probably the past two years was really kind of brush up on my, on my, on my ground game. Um, because, you know, I'm a big, uh, and I've always kind of described it this way, but I'm, a uh, pretty big football fan. And I grew up in central slash kind of Western PA. So I'm a huge Steeler fan. Sure. And, yeah. and my favorite defenses of the Steelers, you know, um, were always those like, you know, mid nineties. And then of course the years where we had Troy Palomalo and, and that whole crew that we won Super Bowls with and stuff like that. But like the thing that was cool about their defense is that you would always hear for here uh, to it be referred as being multiple right? Like where you really didn't know where the blitz was going to come from because they had so many players that could play so many different styles of, or types of positions, like, and almost out of position, like Palomalo could be a free safety this play. The next play, he could be the slot corner. The next play, he could be the, the weak side linebacker. You just never knew, you know, cause he was so multiple in how he could be used. And so I've always kind of thought of hunting that way that, you know, my goal as a hunter is like, I want to be as multiple as I possibly can be because I want to be able to hunt the situation for whatever it calls for, not for whatever I'm capable of doing. 
I don't want my capabilities to limit the opportunities. And then if you go beyond that, then if you're multiple and if that's something that you strive to, to be able to do, then you're also opens up the opportunity to really enjoy different states and hunting different states because you now can just kind of adjust as you go. And that's really what it comes down to is just like, I want to have enough knowledge of enough different things that wherever I happen to be, whatever the, ha- the hunt happens to call for, I can adapt to it on the fly and feel confident as though I still have a chance to fill a tag or achieve my goal. You know, I, it, I think it's really hard. I think when people think about traveling out of state and stuff like that, especially if they're going to get outside their comfort zone a little bit and do something different, you know, it's kind of hard, especially if it's something that they've never done before, because you're looking at it going, well, what are my chances of, of success or of achieving whatever your, whatever your goal is, however someone's measuring success, you know, and if, if the answer is like, well, probably not real good, then person's probably not, probably not going to take that opportunity. But if you just get comfortable with being uncomfortable and being willing to adapt and just try to be as multiple as you can, then all of a sudden it opens up a bunch of different type, a bunch of different States. It opens up a bunch of different types of terrain and habitat. It opens up a bunch of different types of species. And, you know, that for me is the thing that I, I want to do. I want to go, I want to hunt as many places as I possibly can. And I want to experience as many different places as I can. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. The, uh, the more the merrier, right? And the mm-hmm. the more adaptable you are, the more, uh, you know, different tactics, techniques, you know, whatever you want to call them, um, that you're uh, able to deploy depending upon where you're at. Yeah, it just really increases your odds all the way around. And it, I think it just, you know, not only makes you a better hunter, uh, I think kind of to the point you made earlier, it makes you a better woodsman, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, if you're kind of relying on, um, you know, maybe this tactic or, or, or this tactic when it comes to hunting, whether it's maybe spot and stock, um, or if you're, you know, sitting over, uh, you know, a wallow or something for elk hunting or whatever the case is, um, you just, you learn, um, the intricacies of that particular style and <clears throat> you can just, you know, tailor that to whatever situation you're in and, and kind of pull from, from each background and each experience to help you make uh, to help you be successful in that particular and in, in that particular hunt. Right. I mean, I, I think it's applicable across almost anything, right? I mean, it really just comes down to, you know, not to use nerdy, you know, psychology terms or whatever, but it's a growth mindset, right? If you have, if you're one of those people who are interested in kind of expanding uh, what you know to be true and are, are willing to challenge the things that you kind of hold, hold true that you are willing to kind of look at things that might uh, prove what you thought to be true, false, you know, then you're in a much better place to kind of learn, uh, evolve and, and, and get better at almost anything, you know, and, and hunting and hunting is really no different. Um, that's the one thing I really like about, you know, uh, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu is that, you know, I'm a new guy at it and there's kind of like a philosophy of like, you're either winning or you're learning. You know, you don't, you're not really losing when you're, when you're new, you know, necessarily, because whenever someone catches you in a triangle choke, you know, example last week, you know, when I was training, like there was, I was wrestling a guy, I was rolling live with a guy who's been doing it for a little while and I'm new, you know, I wrestled growing up. So I have a little bit of a background of like understanding how to like be on a mat and compete and, and some basic things. Right. But this guy's been doing it for a little while and he caught me in a triangle, probably like, I don't know, he choked me out probably like three times you know, with the same move, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, 
And I finally just stopped. And this is the cool thing about jujitsu is if you're at a good, a good gym, like everyone's there to learn. And so I just stopped. I was like, dude, like you've caught me in this three times. Now. I was like, what am I doing wrong? Like, what am I doing wrong? And two, how do I keep it from happening? Right. And so I was interested in evolving to understand, like, how do I, how do I adapt what I'm doing? Cause I'll change what I'm doing if I have to, you know what I mean? To keep myself from getting into that position again. You know, and so we stopped and he showed me, he's like, hey, you're getting caught here. This is why I'm catching you. This is how you defend it and just kind of showed me. And so from there, it's like I had a better understanding of what I of what I was doing. You know, the uh, the meathead kind of way of going going at that is just that I'm going to just try to power through. and I'm not going to ask any questions. And, I'm, and what I'm doing is right. I just need to do it better. That's not always the case. Right. <laughs> you might be doing it wrong and doing it better just means you're doing it more wrong. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, you know, and, and so it's it's that willingness to, like, have some humility and be humble and recognize whenever there is a learning opportunity and embracing that. And if it challenges something that you think to be true and it turns out that what you thought was true is no longer true, then that should be okay. You know, it's that's cool. Adopt that and be like, awesome. I'm going to start doing it this way now, you know, and then you look to see what results kind of come from that. And it might be a, it might be a, a melding of what you thought you knew and what you learned to be true. Now it might be a kind of a, a coming together of those two things that you kind of find a place that's more comfortable and works better for you. Um, you know, which is a lot of times what happens, right? You kind of have something that's a half truth maybe, and you learn some more half truth over here and you blend those two things together and voila, you now have a better understanding and you ha- have something you're comfortable executing, you know, and that's a lot of times, you know, whether it's jujitsu or whatever it's, you know, you know, for me, at least with hunting, that's usually what ends up happening is I learn something from somebody. It doesn't really work exactly how they describe it. So I take it for how I think I need to ad- adopt it and use it to help me be successful and it becomes a bastardization of what they showed me, but the elements, the principles that they shared with me are there. And so I think that that's really what it comes down to. And I think when you do that, just personally, my humble opinion is I think you you have a lot more fun <laughs> in the timber because you just always feel like you're in the game and uh, always have the right tools for the job, no matter no matter where you're at or what the what the hunt calls for. Yeah, because I'll tell you what. Anyone who's ever spent any amount of time in a tree stand knows that there's no worse feeling than I don't know, you're, let's say it's early season, so you're doing an evening sit and, you know, you get, let's say you get into the stand around three, by 4.30, you're saying to yourself, yep, it's probably not going to happen today, right? Like maybe the wind shifted on you, uh, something, you know, something out of your control kind of blew up your spot or, you know, you, whatever the case is, right? There's, there's a hundred different reasons on, on why you can all of a sudden not be high on a spot. And I don't know how many times... I've done it where I just, you sit it out, you ride it out, right? Cause you're afraid of what you're mm-hmm. going to do if you get down or there's in the back of your mind, there's always that what if, right? Well, what if I stay here? Maybe something will come through. I mean, that's, that's hunting. But at the same time, it's like, you can also say to yourself, I know if I move to this spot with this new wind, for example, um, you know, I have a much higher probability of encountering something, right? But how many, yep. I, I mean, I'm scared of doing it, you know? So, but to have that confidence and to have that understanding, um, yeah, it makes you, yeah, far more dangerous when you're in the woods in a good way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I would ask this is, do you think those, the unwillingness to move from a spot, even when things shift, like say the wind shifts and it's going to be wrong. And it's like, I think what you mentioned was like four o'clock, right? So you're toward the end of the hunt, right? Yeah. Do you think, do you think people's unwillingness, um, to move is, their fear of messing something up or, or how much of it do you think is their ego for wanting to wanting that spot to be right? 
That's a great question. For me, I mean, I have no problem admitting to myself when it's like, yeah, you screwed up. You made a mistake here choosing this spot. I mean, hell, I do it all the time, to be quite honest. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of it, man, I don't know, maybe 50-50. I mean, I know there's there's certainly some some stubborn people out there that just want to even if it's just internally, right? They, they want to be right in their decision. Um, but man, for, for me, it's always, uh, the, the worry or the fear of, of screwing something else up, you know, maybe there's, right. you know, if you're hunting the field edge or, or something like that, or you're here, you set up between bedding and feed or whatever the case is. And, you know, maybe something's going to come through anyway, right. You know, maybe something comes mm-hmm. in a direction that you weren't planning on, that's, you know, actually upwind of you. So they're not going to wind you. Um, I think that's, that's the part that, that always keeps me in the tree. Well, maybe, you know, maybe something that I'm not planning for could happen. (laughs) Right. 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 Yeah. I I think it's, it's, you know, I think you're probably right. I think it's probably 50, 50, you know, um, I know for me, there's been plenty of times where I stuck it out because I was like, this has got to be the spot. You know, and in hindsight, it was the wrong, it was the wrong choice. Um, and that's, you know, I think when, you know, ego had, had gotten me, um, which again is why going back to like the traveling to hunt type thing where I don't like to know a whole lot about where I'm going is because I know I have a, um, I have a habit of kind of building a plan and like learning information about a piece and, and I'll, I'll feel like I have it really dialed and then I'll be more reluctant to, adapt that plan like because i'll be like i put all the work in i know this is like this is what they're doing they've got to do this you know and i'll talk myself into it where when i travel out of state my uh, buddies of mine have made this observation and and this is whenever i started kind of changing things because they're like man you go out of state you know nothing for nothing when you show up to a place and they were like give you two days and they were like you're on bucks in two days like wherever i've gone and they were like but you you hunt at home and you you kind of outthink yourself in terms of like your strategy where if you would just hunt more free and more aggressive you would probably have the re- more of the results that you get out of state in your home state and there's a lot of and there's a lot of truth to that you know and 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 it's a constant battle for me to have to kind of like check the ego and all the work that I did and go, you know what, it isn't going to happen in these spots. And these are the reasons why, and this is why I need to change, you know? And so I think, I think there's unwillingness to change spots and it's not even necessarily like changing spots the day of a hunt and being in in a tree, right? Like the wind shifts. It's like, Oh, I should move because this is gonna, this isn't going to be good. I think it's when you get married to a spot um, year over year is when, when the ego aspect starts to come in because it's happened in this spot before, you know, might refer to it as, you know, falling in love with a tree or whatever. Right. Um, and so you want it to happen there year over because you've had success there before. And that's kind of the part where the ego won't let you, uh, it won't let you move on, even though the reason that it happened there, the circumstances this year are completely different than last year, which should tell you that that might not be the spot this year. Um, but you know, the, the heart wants what the heart wants. (laughs) (laughs) That's the truth. No, I, 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 You know, when you started putting, mentioning or, or kind of referencing it like that, we're kind of falling in love with the tree. I've certainly done that um, mm-hmm. where, you know, yeah, the, I know, gosh, this is three years ago now. Um, yeah, it was that September 7th, which is 
which is easily my favorite day of the rut. I've just, it's a day where I've just had a lot of really good encounters with deer. Um, in this particular day, um, I mean, it was just everything lined up, right? Uh, we got like four inches of snow the night before. I mean, so much. I mean, I've told this story in the podcast before, but I was planning to hunt, um, to go up like Thursday night to our property, hunt Friday, Saturday, Sunday morning, uh, and then head home. And it was Wednesday night and we looked at the weather and a bunch of snow, like the, the weather system had shifted a day. So all the snow we were supposed to get Thursday night, we got Wednesday night. So we called an audible, uh, my brother-in-law and I like jumped in the truck at like 10 o'clock, drove two hours to our cabin, our property, um, you know, rolled in around midnight, got up, you know, super early the next day, got out and it was like 17 degrees, you know, this fresh, you know, four or five inches of snow on the ground, you know, temp or the pressure was through the roof, just all the things, you know, from a, a weather standpoint that you're looking for, especially, you know, that time of year. And yeah. I mean, there was, you know, from kind of the opening bell. I mean, I had, you know, a ton of movement, you know, saw some good bucks, uh, ended up killing a buck that night. And I got married to that tree for the, for the following season. I was just like, no, mm -hmm. like last year was so good to me. I just, I can't, like if, if the wind's going to be right, like I'm going to sit this stand. Right. And right. Yeah. So I have been caught in the, in the ego thing just because, yeah, I was like, no, this has to be, <laughs> this has to be the spot. Right. Right. And now I, now I don't want to make it sound like, you know, a tree can't produce year over year. I don't want people that are listening to think that that's, uh, that that's what I'm suggesting. There are certainly, there are certainly places, you know, especially when you start talking about rut, like certain funnels or whatever that are going to just produce action and activity, right. That where if you're hunting the rut and, you know, and you have a great funnel in between two sections of doe bedding that you know, for sure, are doe bedding, it's like, well then, yeah, if you're in that spot year over year, you're probably going to, you know, have decent encounters in, in that spot. I know for me, you know, everything that I hunt in PA is, is, is public and everything I hunt when I go out of state is public. And so, you know, I don't, um, I don't have, you know, I obviously don't have any control over what's happening around me. And so like every year is kind of like a little bit of relearning the, the piece because, you know, a tree stand may or may not pop up in a new spot that it wasn't the year before. And I right. need to know that, you know, it's like, and then I need to figure out how that person is accessing that because the spot that I'm intending to hunt, well, is that person's access screwing up my hunt now? You know, and if it is, is there a different place that I can, is there a different place that I can, that I can potentially, um, that I can potentially hunt it, you know, and there's been some, and I've, I've figured out a couple things last year because that did happen for one spot last year. I was, I was chasing this one particular deer that was just, he was a freak for around here for sure. Um, and, uh, I had a good beat on him and I had, so my season opens mid September cause I'm in a special regulations unit. So I open up, I think last year the opening day was the 19th, I want to say of September. So it's, it's right there in the middle of the month ish, you know, depending on what day that Saturday falls on. Right. Um, and I had this, this buck hitting this community scrape, uh, like a week before the season opened. Right. And then he kind of disappeared and I wasn't going to pressure him like early in the season. Uh, cause I wasn't sure if he was going to transition or what. So I was just kind of laying low for a second and going to wait to see if he started showing back up closer to, you know, the beginning of October to see if maybe I could, you know, get him, you know, uh, the first week of October potentially. Right. So I walked in, checked this trail camera and he had been in there daylighting pretty much 
the whole last week of September, if I had just been in there one of those mornings, I would have would have killed him. Um, but then someone's tree stand popped up not too too far away, and I, I'm pretty sure there was no other cameras around, so I'm pretty sure that person had no clue that that deer was particularly there. But they they were in a spot that wasn't a terrible spot, and so what I started doing was um, using uh, some intel that I had about core ranges versus transition areas versus kind of full range day movements and knowing, you know, what days they would, those would fall on and knowing kind of what his general area was. Cause at this point now it's like the beginning of October. So I know he's going to stick around, like he's going to travel for rut, but up until he really gets moving for rut, like he's probably going to be in the general, in the general area, right? This is his fall range. At least I'm within his fall range. And I was getting daylight pictures, so I knew I was close to where he was bedding. Fast forward to this off season, I found I found one of his beds. So what I ended up doing was this kind of new on transition areas. I knew of another really good primary scrape that I was like, man, this probably is in the realm of his transition area that he's going to be comfortable moving on those transition days um, a little further away from his bed, and I can probably catch him here. So I ended up hunting him there on like the, I don't remember what day it was, maybe the 22nd, I think of October and uh, whatever it was, it was a Friday after work. I ran out and felt really good about that particular spot and uh, didn't see him, but he came through the following morning at like 8 AM <laughs> broad daylight <laughs> missed him by like a handful of hours. And so I played catch up with him again, like uh, five days later, I caught up with him at a, another primary scrape that was maybe a half mile away from that one and i was there on the 28th and he came through on the 29th so i missed him by date two different uh two different times so that's just an instance where you know yeah the spot that i had kind of outlined it was great until someone kind of moved in in close proximity and their their access was now going to blow up my my chances or i just wasn't willing to risk it there that i then moved you know just kind of like one circle out from where his kind of primary bed was and that I now probably couldn't play that kind of, uh, I guess, bed hunting strategy, so to speak. I was now playing kind of like the transition area strategy that he was probably going to want to check out and kind of check some of these community scrapes out, but weren't too awful far away from his bed. His bed was kind of like there was a big community scrape that was maybe 100 yards from his bed. Um, and then on either side of his bed, that was kind of like the middle, then on either side of his bed, you know, a couple hundred yards away were two other big community scrapes. And so those I kind of figured out of play on core days, on days that were transition area days, I felt like those two scrapes, depending on the wind, were uh, were in, were uh, potentially in play. So that was my strategy. It played out. I was just there on the, uh, you know, a couple hours before him on two different times. Yeah. Yeah. The chess match. That's what you love about about hunting in general, right? Is, yeah. is it, it's, it comes down to feet or inches or hours, you know, whatever the case is. I mean, it's, I mean, that's, that's what we, you know, anyone who, who spends enough time, you know, chasing any animal, I mean, that's it, the pursuit, you know, the, the, again, the, the chess game, that's, that's what's so great about it. Yeah. It's uh, I mean, that's the part, uh, you know, that I really, you know, I think I appreciate most about, about bow hunting, you know, over any other type of, uh, type of hunting. Um, yeah, I really don't hunt with a gun very, very often. Turkey season is really about the only time that I do. And not that there's anything, anything wrong with it. And I don't think differently for people who prefer that method of take. Um, it's just for me, you know, the part that I really like is beating them at their own game. Yeah. You know, I like getting up, up in their business, you know, again, why I like the ground hunting, <laughs> spotting and stalking. It's like, I like the hunts where, 
I have to get close, um, that I have to be all up in their business and that I, I really have to know and understand not just them, but how they want to use the area in which they live. And I have to try to figure out how to be undetected. You know what I mean? And you're never undetected, but how can you stay undetected long enough <laughs> to get an arrow off, you know, yeah. um, is, 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 is the goal. And that's the part that I really like about it. And, you know, and I think, you know, if, if you're like, I'm not, you know, there's some guys out there that fill tags on hammers every year. I'm not, I'm not one of those guys. Um, you know, so for me, it's like the way I kind of quantify, you know, success for me is probably different than other, other people, you know, some of it, you know, just like you in Michigan, you know, Pennsylvania is a hard state to hunt, man, you know, especially yeah. hunting public ground. It's, yeah, especially, right. You know, you, know, you, you, you some people will go a season and not see a shooter. That's not uncommon. You know what I mean? So for me, you know, the way I kind of qualify or quantify success is, you know, if I am able to get a legitimate encounter with one of the shooters that I've identified during the course of the off season, if I can get one of them in bow range, like that's a win for me you know, because it's, you don't always see them. Um, you know, in the past, like last year I had <clears throat> in Pennsylvania I had encounters with, uh, two of the three shooters I was trying to kill last year. And both times it was just, I made really bad mistakes that I didn't get an arrow off either time, you know, well, I actually shouldn't say that the one he was behind brush. So I wasn't going to get a shot off at that one. He was at 15 yards. It just wasn't going to come any further. And then one, I stopped and made a, uh, a rub on his way to a scrape that I was hunting near. And uh, he looked like another deer that I had on camera. There was two big, big framey eight points. One looked like he was, you know, three and a half, maybe four and a half. And one looked like he was probably just a two and a half year old, but had a very similar frame. One just had longer times, was overall a bigger deer, but longer times. The other one was a nice framey eight point, but just had shorter times. It was a younger deer. And I couldn't tell which one it was when it was approaching. And this is at like 25 yards and he's making a, uh, a rub and I can't see like his, I can't get a full view of his time. Like I know it's a buck. I know it's one of the two, but I don't know if it's the one I want to shoot or not. And by the time he popped his head out, like I knew I was like, oh shit, that's the one I want to shoot. And by that time <laughs> there wasn't, I didn't have enough time to get drawn. And it was just a stupid, stupid mistake where it's like you draw the bow first and you figure it out whether you're going to shoot or not. You know right. what I mean? And I just, I got caught up in the moment of like trying to figure him out that I just, you know, made a critical, critical rookie mistake. Um, you know, so, you know, but the chess match was one, like he was dead. Like I had him at, uh, 15, that one was at 15 yards still, you know? So what are you going to do next year? I, you, I learned from that mistake and, you know, try to be better the next time. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Learn and move on. Absolutely. So yeah. Clint, one of the things I want to talk to you about, um, as much as I, I want to continue to talk about, you know, tactics and just tell some stories and things like that. Skull Brew Coffee. Tell me about yeah. that. Yeah. So uh, Skull Brew Coffee is a coffee company my, my wife and I started. Um, you know, it was really, uh, I guess it was really born from the idea that, uh, you know, not to be all, all, all hippy dippy, but I don't know if it's because, you know, as I was, you know, as I get older and have a family and stuff like that, you start thinking about, you know, what you're leaving for people, you start, you start to think about yourself maybe a little bit less and you start to think about others a little bit more. Um, I guess maybe a simple way to say it. Yeah. And it, you know, and hunting is one of those things, you know, I was a musician before, um, you know, that was like, I guess my first career, if you will. And, uh, you know, so I grew up hunting, 
you know, all throughout my youth and my childhood and stuff like that until I basically started, you know, playing in a band and, and not being around as often and stuff like that made it really hard to kind of do any type of hunt. I was able to take some trips with my dad and stuff like that, but wasn't able to for a bunch of years just, you know, hunt consistently. And music was the thing that I was passionate about. And, you know, I, I did that for a long time. And then, you know, once I stopped that, I just kind of naturally fell back right back into, in, into hunting. And it was bow hunting that made me realize that the same passion and same kind of, you know, uh, life enrichment that music gave me, I was getting those same feelings bow hunting and that it was, you know, uh, it was refilling my cup if you will. Right. I guess might be one way to say it. No pun intended coffee, but um, yeah, <laughs> that was, even, that wasn't even on purpose. It's terrible. Um, you know, so it, it made me kind of stop and think that, you know, I, I was in a tree the one day and I was just kind of thinking about it. And I was like, man, you know, this is something that I feel like I take from all the time. Like if I need it, I go out into the woods. If I need to get my head right, if I have a lot of stress at work or at home, or if I'm just trying to think through something like the, the woods, the mountains, whether it's at home or out West or whatever, they're always here for me. And I was like, you know, I don't know that I've ever given enough back to it. And I was like, and I don't know that in my lifetime, I'll ever be able to give enough back to it to give it what, it, what it's given me. And so it, it made me kind of think of, I need to figure out a way to start giving back on a more um, continual basis. And so, you know, ran through a bunch of different ideas and, you know, I knew I wanted it to be a recurring kind of revenue stream that I could, you know, continually give back. And it wasn't just like a one shot deal. Um, and I wanted to be able to use my background that I have in marketing and stuff like that. Cause I thought that that would be a smart thing to do is to use some of the skill sets that I already have professionally. Strengths, yeah. And, uh, yeah, my wife and I love good coffee. And anytime we would travel, we would always go to like, you know, small independent coffee shops and stuff like that and try like the local coffees and stuff like that. And so that was really how it was born. It was, you know, really a, a passion project to try to give back on a continual basis. And, uh, yeah, that was, that was the genesis of it. And then Skull Brew Coffee was, was born from that. How long did it take you guys to kind of get things up off the ground and, and get it running once you had, you know, really settled on the idea of, of a coffee company? Yeah, uh, it was probably six to eight months uh, to kind of get everything, you know, ironed, ironed out. Um, it was, uh, you know, because I was doing it, you know, at, at first it was really just a lot of me, a lot of like the operational stuff now is, is my wife. Um for the most part, we still both work full-time jobs. The coffee thing is like a, you know, a passion project, like I said. Um, so at the beginning, you know, she was really just kind of leaving it up to me to make the decisions around, you know, essentially how are we going to do this and how do we stand the business up and take care of like the branding, building of the website and just, you know, all that stuff. Um, that's also what I do, you know, for a living. So I, I kind of knew how to do it. So it made sense for me to kind of, kind of do it, but it was definitely like a nights and weekends thing on top of the podcast. Um, to do. So it took, you know, roughly six to eight months um, to, and, you know, from the, not from the moment that we decided to do it, because that actually happened, you know, actually in a deer blind with a buddy of mine, we were hunting late season. Cause I had been thinking about this. I had that, not epiphany, but those thoughts that I had just kind of described while I was sitting in a tree and I kind of, you know how, when you have ideas and you run them by friends, hoping they talk you out of it, you know, <laughs> you know what I'm oh, talking yeah. about where you're like, yeah. So it was one of those where I was sitting in a deer blind with a buddy of mine every late season. He and I usually try to go on a hunt or two together. Coincidentally, he's the guy that I'm going uh, visiting in Idaho and hunting with. And we just try to whack some does. Mainly, it's just time for me and a good buddy to catch up for a couple hours. You know, we have, both have families and stuff like that. And we're sitting there and talking. And I was like, 
you know what? I was like, I think I'm going to start a coffee business. And I'm waiting for him to go, man, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard you say. <laughs> you know, and he's like, he looks at me like real serious and goes, man, that's a great idea. You should do that. <laughs> and so at that point, it was kind of like, all right, well, I guess I'm doing this. And so it was from that moment when I really decided, like, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and give this a go. And it was from that kind of point where I was going to make an honest effort. It was like six to eight months to get it, you know, from concept to off the ground. Yeah. Yeah. It's those, uh, I mean, so my company, the average conservation is kind of the same thing where I, when I was telling people about the idea, I didn't know if they were giving me lip service, you know, telling me like, Oh yeah, no, that's, that's a great idea. Right. Because that's just maybe what I wanted or they thought I wanted to hear, or if they really, Mm -hmm. you know, thought like, Hey, that, that makes sense. I mean, you know, if, if, if this is what you want to do and you want to be able to give back, then yeah, this is a great idea. And yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's really cool to, to be able to build something, you know, on your own, right. That you can Mm -hmm. kind of put your name to, um, that everything kind of, you know, in this particular case with, with you and your wife, I mean, it, it starts and stops with you, right. All the decisions are, Mm -hmm. are made with you too. Uh, but then to use that, uh, essentially as a mechanism to, to give back, um, I think is, Mm -hmm. is awesome because, not a lot of people come to that realization, right? That they've been, you know, as outdoorsmen or outdoors women, that they've, you know, inherently been taking from the land for all this time and recognize that need to, to give back and to, you know, try to replenish, I guess, the, the land as best as they can. Um, so to have a passion project that that's main focus and main goal is to give back uh, is just, it, it's super cool. And that's, you know, I, I hear that a lot from people, right? With whatever mm-hmm. their businesses or, you know, what whatever they're doing and giving back is, is kind of a, a main uh, driving factor in that. I mean, you know, a lot of times people start, you know, side businesses or passion projects because, well, if it's a passion project, I mean, it, 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 they're still hoping to make some money from it, right? I mean, that's, right. that's what you want to do. But, it, you know, you and your wife both have your your regular day jobs and and you guys are doing this on nights and weekends and everything, but you're using, instead of maybe using all of that money to, you know, go on a vacation or, you know, take another, another Mm -hmm. hunting trip or something like that. You're, you're using that money to give back to conservation. And I think, I just think that's such a a great thing. And I love, I I love hearing those words come out of people's mouths whenever they tell their stories. Yeah, man. Cause I mean, you know, look, I'm not suggesting everybody has to, I don't want to make it sound like, you know, I'm, I'm saying that, you know, everyone should, should do this. Not everyone necessarily has the, um, the time or the skill set to, you know, I don't want to say easily, but, uh, have it be a tangible thing that they can, that they could pull off on their own or whatever. And that's okay. You know, and being a member of different nonprofit, you know, conservation groups is just, just as well. You know, I knew for me, you know, I was, member of a bunch of bunch of different groups and paying my my monthly or my yearly you know memberships or dues or whatever the case is and i was just like man i feel like i could do more and that was really what it came down to and i was like well how do i do more i was like well let's let's figure out a way that i can do what i do for a living how can i use that as a skill um to benefit conservation and i've talked about this with uh, i might even wrote an article actually for uh before it was q uh before it was nda whenever it was still qdma um, about essentially, you know, utilizing the skills that you have to give back to conservation it doesn't always have to be necessarily a monetary contribution. It could be, you know, um, you might be a forester in that 
you know, a farm close by to you that wants to do some habitat reclamation or whatever that might could maybe use your help that, you know, you can go and give them some free services or you might be really handy with a chainsaw. You can go in and help someone, you know, do a, you know, a timber cut or whatever that's going to help some habitat. Or you might have some farm equipment that you can loan out to plant native grasses or whatever the case is, right? Or help someone do a controlled burn or whatever the case is. Like there's a lot of different ways to give back. It doesn't always have to be monetary. And, you know, for me, it was like, I'm always skinny on time, um, you know, but I have a skill set that I could put the good use in, and I could give back more, you know, in a monetary sense, because I don't have a lot of time to give like of, of my time per se. So that was kind of really the, the idea. And the other kind of unintended consequence was that my daughter helps with a bunch of this stuff too. And it was to kind of get her to understand that, you know, contributing to things beyond yourself is important regardless of whether it's conservation or other people or whatever the case is, um, is, you know, part of like the, the moral compass I want you to have growing up. Um, and you know, and she's super into animals. She does horseback riding. And so she volunteers at her, at her barn, um, you know, and helps out with the horses and she desperately wants to volunteer at a, at an animal shelter. She's not old enough yet. Um, so, so it's, it's the unintended consequences is like trying to, you know, help, help my daughter have the, a moral compass that I, um, that I think that she'll be proud of as she gets older. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's a great way or something, uh, great that's come out of that. Right. Is like you mm-hmm. said, an unintended consequence, but it's, it's one that's going to serve her, her well, um, you know, throughout her entire life, just having that, that understanding of the bigger picture and mm-hmm. the greater good and, you know, being selfless, uh, in that way too, is, is something that, you know, some people go their whole life without learning it, or they learn it very late in life. Um, so to be yeah. able to have that understanding um, at a young age is is critical, right? Because then, you know, you, you start to think about the ripple effect, right? The people she comes yeah. in contact with, uh, in contact with, or you know, her family when she gets older, right? I mean, there's just yeah. all these things, and it's just, it's just, it's going to be, it's going to have a a lot bigger effect than than just your daughter as time goes on, which is which is really cool to think about. Yeah, that's just it, man. A lot of people, when they think about, you know, their legacy, you know, um, they think about, you know, what they're leaving for someone to inherit behind. And the way we really should think about it is, you know, your legacy. Did you leave something meaningful for others uh, behind to help to be able to be used as a guide? Um, and that, to me, I think is what what legacy ultimately means. So it's like, you know, I I may not have a whole lot to leave this world when I leave it, um, but hopefully I've left. Uh, an impression on some folks that can, um, you know, kind of pass those, uh, that goodwill, uh, goodwill forward on my behalf. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great way to put it. So with Skullbrew, what types of, or how many different blends are you offering and, and what exactly are they? What do they can kind of consist of? Yeah. So everything we do is all single origin, uh, premium, uh, premium coffee. Uh, that's kind of been the focus. Like, you know, I, I like good coffee, so that's, that's what I wanted to, uh, wanted to, to focus on. We have, um, three different roasts right now. We have a Papua New Guinea, uh, we have an Ethiopia Harar and we have a Colombian. Um, right now the Papua New Guinea is out. We've like, like every other business on the planet we've had <clears throat> over the past, I guess, two years have run into all kinds of, um, logistic problems and shipping problems and, you know, product problems and stuff like that. It's a never ending kind of uh, revolving door of that. So right now the Papua New Guinea is out, but we have the other two in, and then we've got some merch and stuff like that. My, the thing that I was most stoked about is that when I travel to hunt, like I'm a coffee nut and I, I don't like drinking bad coffee and I, 
I hate drinking. I mean, I'll do it if I go out on a hunt, like take like the, the Insta packs or you just add water to or whatever. Yeah. Right. I've done that plenty of times, but the truth is, man, like after like a solid week of that and a lot of the trips I take are like two weeks, like after like a good four days of that stuff, like you got some serious rot gut going oh, yeah. on and it ain't, it ain't no good on the, on the other end. If, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah. So especially out in the back country. Yeah. <laughs> Right. That's right. So I was like, man, I got to, and I know that they have like these pour over kits and stuff like that. And I was like, man, I want my own pour over kit. Cause I, I don't, I don't want to drink crappy coffee. I want to drink good coffee. So I actually made back country, uh, essentially it's back country travel packs is what they are. And so it's essentially our Papua New Guinea that's ground in, in a little pour over kit that where you could just basically open the package through the, through the little filter with the coffee already contained in it over top of like whatever you know, cup you're using, whether you're using some type of tumbler or whatever, just boil some, some water in your jet boil and dump it through that filter and bam, you've got a primo cup of coffee in the back country and makes very little waste. So that was like, when I was like, it took me forever to figure out the right like partner, packing partner to basically take my coffee and, and my ground coffee and, and put it into these little packages. It took me forever to find a person that I could actually work with that it actually tasted the way I wanted to taste and worked the way I wanted to work. And once I found that, I was like, sweet Jesus, yes, finally. So <laughs> that's the thing that I was most uh, most stoked on. It's actually one of my favorite parts of travel hunting, actually. I get to use my little my little travel uh my little travel kit uh coffee setup. I actually even use it whenever I go to visit family because the parents don't always drink the best the best coffee. Um so I usually take it with me whenever I whenever I visit any family just to make sure that way uh I am the snooty, uh, the snooty coffee person that comes to visit. So I will, I have no problem busting out my own coffee if you're drinking like Folgers or something like that. Yeah, no, I, uh, I love that approach because up until probably year and a half ago, I was kind of like, like you would say, like, like in-laws or family or something would be where I love coffee. I would drink it. I don't think I really knew what good coffee was, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. so in a previous line of work, uh, I worked, uh, in manufacturing, so, you know, when you, when you have, I mean, there's an engineering was upstairs and like all the, like the, the manufacturing itself was done on the, on the lower level and people would make coffee, you know, for, for everyone, communal coffee upstairs and downstairs. Mm-hmm. But it was always like, you know, the, you know, the, the business owners would go to Costco, buy the big cans of, you know, freaking Folgers yeah. or whatever it was. And that's just what you drank. And everyone, yep. who, depending on who made the coffee that morning or that pot of coffee, you know, some people like they're super strong. So it was like tar coming out of there and some mm-hmm. people didn't, you know, so it just, every cup was different. None of it was, was really any good, but you know, I wasn't going to spend six bucks a day to, you know, stop at Starbucks or, 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 right. or something like that. Right. Just, I, it just wasn't that important to me. And then I had, um, I mean, cause there's, you know, at least a handful of, of coffee companies who are 2% certified. I had one of them yeah. on, and I think it was the first coffee company I had on. And you just start to, I was just talking to them and and they started asking me some questions about, you know, what I have kind of tasted with coffee or how I'm drinking my coffee. And, you know, they got me into pour over coffee, which Mm -hmm. I mean, that's about the only way I like to drink it now. Like if we go on vacation somewhere, um, like my in-laws have a cabin, it's like, okay, well maybe we'll just like buy a a pot, you know, or an electric kettle and, um, you know, just, uh, you know, have have the um, accessories necessary for some pour over coffee exactly. because, because I, yep. I was drinking Keurigs and all that stuff. And I tried to explain yeah. to them, I'm like, it's just so much better. Like when I, when I wake up in the morning, I just, I want my coffee right away. It's like, 
just take five minutes. I'm telling you, it's so much better. Like when you, yeah, the, exactly. You know, and, you know, especially you look at like one of those Keurigs, it's like, how long has that thing been in the box on the shelf? As opposed to, you know, a lot of, you know, these smaller companies, uh, coffee companies like yourself, where, you know, you're brewing or you're roasting your beans fresh. So, you know, they're arriving to their customers, you know, probably within a week to two weeks of when they were roasted. So, you know, you grind mm -hmm. those beans up and like that smell and it's just, you can't really compare it to, to coffee anywhere else. Um, or, yeah. or it's, it's, it's without compare in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's to the point when, when, you know, if we go out of town for like, a an adult weekend away, you know, we leave our daughter with one of our, one of our parents and, you know, my wife and I go somewhere like the Poconos or something like that for like a little like getaway for a weekend. We always pack our backcountry pour over packs with us and just plan on drinking our own coffee. And if we happen to find like a good coffee shop that's like close by, like I always like to buy and like support the local, like whoever the local coffee shop is, as long as they have yeah. good coffee, it's like then I'll make a point to walk there and, and get it or whatever. But to your point, sometimes, you know, if we have like a, an adult weekend away, might wake up Saturday morning and not feel real great, not want to leave the, <laughs> the hotel room quite yet, you know, so it's like I might need to make a first cup <laughs> in the room first, you know, you know what I'm saying? So oh, yeah. uh, sometimes you need to take care of that. And uh, and you're right, man, like there's nothing like fresh coffee. Like, you know, so ours is about as close as you can get to roast on demand um, because we only ship at most usually two days a week. And that's because when we get orders in, we'll only roast uh, specific days of the week. So whenever you get your coffee, if you buy it on a, on a Wednesday, one of the days that's, that's uh, the roasting is done on Thursday, that means it'll ship on Friday and it'll be to you within two to three days, which means you have coffee that is no less than probably three days after roasting. Yeah. And so it's about as fresh as you'll be able to, it's about as fresh as you can buy from an online, uh, from an online company. Yeah. And that's, I mean, I've, I've said this numerous times, but, you know, from, from coffee that I make at home, I can't remember the last time I drank a cup of coffee that wasn't from a 2% brand because they're, they're all great, yeah. right? Because they all kind of mm -hmm. take that same approach of, of, you know, roasting on demand. I mean, I've had, I ordered one from someone one time who emailed me and said, Hey, we're not roasting until we're not roasting that particular blend until, you know, Thursday. Yeah. Is it all right? Yep. If, you know, if, if it's shipped separate or. Uh, you know, if we just wait, you know, another two or three days before we ship it, I was like, mm -hmm. I'll wait. I'm good. <laughs> like well, you don't have to you get with smaller companies, right? You get that, that quality, that, mm -hmm. that attention to detail, you know what I mean? That's like, it, cause it's important to them, you know? Yeah. And so, um, that's the nice thing about, you know, going with smaller companies, especially, I mean, there's some really great, like you said, there's some really great coffee companies out there that are, that are making just a really good cup of Joe <laughs> for lack of a better way to put it. So. I, I think I was looking at this uh, on the 2% website earlier, and I think you, as it stands now, you're the last 2% um, coffee company that, I'm, that I've spoken with, or you're the last one for me to speak with, I guess is a better way to put it. And you guys have been uh, certified since 2019, so coming up on three years, or you know, depending upon, we'll just call it three years. Yeah. What are some of, or how did you, I guess, how did you first learn about 2%? Man, uh, you're really taxing my memory here. I'm mm -hmm. trying to go back into in, into the vault. If it was a hunting story, I you'd learned, know it, though. I, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I remember every detail, the, 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 the circles around the deer's eyes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I actually heard 2%, I think, way back in the day on 
wired to hunt with Mark. Okay. Um, they were on there, and I think it was just when he first started it, because if I'm not mistaken, he was he had originally worked for Sitka, and um, if I'm not mistaken, and he and the person that was on the podcast was wanting to kind of leave Sitka and, and was doing a lot of the conservation work, I think, on uh, for Sitka, whatever the conservation stuff that Sitka was doing, that person was kind of heading up a lot of that, a lot of that stuff. And, and if I'm, if I'm getting the story correct, I hope I'm not getting this wrong. Um, and then he wanted to kind of branch out on his own and thought, well, hey, if I'm able to do this for Sitka and kind of aggregate these businesses to have, you know, for Sitka have this impact on conservation, maybe I can then kind of make this a thing where I try to aggregate a bunch of businesses, you know, a variety of businesses that are all like-minded and, and be able to use that to kind of push the conservation agenda forward at the same time, you know, creating a repository of businesses um, that uh, outdoorsmen and women, men and women can feel good about purchasing from. And so that was really where I first heard of them was from, was from that. Um, and then whenever we started the, uh, the coffee company, um, I just I, I went online and got got an email some some way shape or form and just sent an email. I was like, hey, I've got this coffee company and I like the mission you guys have and uh, would be great to be uh, to be part of it. Um, and that was really that was really kind of how it started. But that's where I first learned of two percent for conservation. Yeah. Now, what are some of the organizations that uh, you guys are giving back to? Uh, historically, it's been RMEF. Uh, it's been QDMA or now. Uh, NDA. And then the, I'm going to get this wrong. We wanted to go with one. I'm actually going to have to look up because I don't remember the name of it now off the top of my head. Uh, we wanted to go with one that was not hunting related. Um, the reason being is that, you know, I, I love hunting and it's kind of a, it's a company that hunting is kind of at the, uh, I guess at the, at the forefront of it, I guess, uh, so to speak. Yeah. But I also know that hunting isn't necessarily, or conservation is not exclusively a hunting, uh, a hunting thing, right. right? Or a hunting res- a responsibility, the nature conservancy. I don't know why I couldn't think of that earlier. Um, so we didn't want to dissuade those who were, uh, not hunters from purchasing from us because we didn't support any, you know, conservation group that was just, I guess, maybe more mainstream for lack of a better way to put it. Um, and the other idea was too, is that, you know, maybe in some way, shape or form, I was hopeful that maybe, you know, a, a cup of skull brew coffee or two cups of skull brew coffee might be shared at some point between people who, between two people, one of which hunts and one of which doesn't, and maybe it'll allow them to have a conversation about, about conservation and how much we have in common versus how much we have not in common. Um, and so that's why we chose the nature conservancy was because we felt like they were, uh, as politically neutral as we could find, um, while still kind of doing the type of work that we wanted to see done. And so the, so the, so we chose the nature conservancy for those who, who may come to us and not be, uh, hunting affiliated. Yeah, no, that's a great approach. I like that. And, and to have that, that kind of, that thought or that foresight to, to hopefully, there's a there's a time when a hunter and a non hunter are are sharing a cup of your coffee and it's it's a a point of conversation um, to mm-hmm. to try to bridge that gap. Um, no, I think that's that's great and and we need that. But we we need more of those conversations. I mean, whether it's over a cup of coffee or it's in line at the post office, right? Because someone sees yeah. a hat that you're wearing or a shirt that you're wearing or something like that. I mean, 
just having those conversations, I think, is is what's going to help move, you know, not only hunting, um, but the the uh, but but conservation uh, forward as well is is when those two sides um, can really come together for, you know, the the betterment of, of wild places and wild animals, because you know, just because, you know, you practice and I practice conservation through hunting, um, you know, amongst other things, it doesn't mean that, you know, my neighbor who maybe they like to bird watch or, or camp exactly. or something like that, right? Yeah. Like we're all, we all want the same things and we want the same, we want to enjoy the same places. We just have different ways of, of going about, um, you know, preserving those. Yeah. Yeah. And of course we've, we've done stuff with backcountry hunters and anglers too. That's been someone who we've had on our list and, you know, beyond the list, you know, we've done some of the, they had a rendezvous in, in PA that we were, um, that we were a sponsor of and we were there and had a booth and stuff like that. And it's, you know, they've been, uh, good partners of ours and we've done some, uh, some giveaway stuff with those guys too, as far as like some of their, their pint nights and stuff around Pennsylvania. So yeah. Chris and those guys have been, have been super cool. Um, you know, so we've tried to kind of, we, we tried to spread the love, <laughs> so to speak. Right. So one that's, you know, not hunting focused and then, one that's deer focused, one that's elk focused, and then one that's just kind of a, a hunting and fishing access all in, you know, organization. Yeah. Covering all your bases. That's a good way to, that's a good way to go about it for sure. Yeah. So, yeah. So going back to the coffee side of things, what's something that you've learned that you didn't know uh, about coffee or about the coffee industry prior to starting the company? Man, that is a good question. Um, you're hitting me with some really good ones, man. I'm trying. Um, I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> what is something that I learned uh, about the coffee industry or coffee in general that I didn't expect going in? Hmm. Well, I, I I'll say this: like I was a, a bit of a, I guess, coffee uh, snob. I guess whenever I went into it, but I didn't really know as much as I thought I knew about about coffee. Um, especially whenever it came to like, um, you know, especially early on, it's like, I was reading about where like different beans were coming from and different like washing methods and, and, you know, um, different brewing kind of temperatures to pull out certain notes, like one, one bean roasted to a certain roast, um, and then brewed at a certain temperature will have a different profile, um, if it's that same roast, but just brewed at a different, at a, at a lower temperature or at a higher temperature. Right. And so it was just like all those different things. And like a buddy of mine owns a handful of bars when I lived in, or when I lived in Orlando. And so I was always around kind of, and I bartended while I was on the, you know, in a band and stuff like that. And so like I, I had to develop, I guess, a little bit of a palate to be able to taste like the, the nuances of, of things whenever you're making like craft cocktails and stuff like that. Sure. Yeah. Um, and so, it was interesting to me and kind of mind blowing really whenever I had, so I'll give you an example. So the Ethiopia Harar that we have, um, the reason why we have that is because one, I wanted to have uh, an an African coffee. Um, and I wasn't a huge fan of them early on, um, for whatever reason, you're typically a little higher in caffeine. Um, the lighter the roast, the higher, higher caffeine content typically. Um, and, and it would always make me a little bit, a little bit jittery. So I typically don't like to drink those, those warm. Right. But what I learned was, it was like, man, that coffee as a pour over tastes nothing like it, what it tastes like whenever it's just straight kind of brewed in like a regular coffee maker. 
like it almost tastes like there's certain coffees when you do it as a pour because the pour over is like to your earlier point is the the jam like if i have my choice i i if i have time in the mornings i'll, I'll make pour over yeah. because that's what i prefer if i'm in a rush then i just use like a fresh grind in my in my coffee maker um but certain coffees you will almost get like this herbal tea kind of flavor and notes from a coffee done via pour over at the right temperature and that was one of those where it's like it blew me away when i drank it because i was like oh my god man this is almost like and i don't like tea but but it was good you know and it was just it was the i never knew until i got into coffee like the how wide the palate is for these coffees at different kind of in different with different brewing styles french press tastes different than pour over pour over tastes different than drip iced you know uh tastes different than not ice like whatever the case is like it's just there is a a much larger world than i had anticipated um and i was never like i always kind of assumed like those nitro cold brews and stuff like that were always kind of like a little bit bougie dude i love nitro cold brew like <laughs> so good so good yeah, it's so good you know and, and like when we do farmers markets and stuff around here like we have a nitro we have a nitro set up and we pour nitro cold brew and we will just sell piles of that just like as much as we can possibly make we sell and not gonna lie i set it up in my basement on my bar and i make myself nitro cold brews in the morning whenever i have it you know you all, there, all there in there the you go yeah yeah it's bad because i'll drink like tumblers full of that stuff and i'll, I'll look like richard pryor doing like a comedy sketch man like, <laughs> about to set myself on fire smoking crack it's what it looked like it's going 100 miles an hour <laughs> oh yeah 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 it's a bad deal um but i think that's the thing that you know walking into it um you know pretty green was just uh the the depth and breadth of the palate that you can kind of uh, experience with coffee i, I would ha- i had no clue really um I thought I did, but I had no clue whenever I got into it that it was as, as deep and as wide as it is. Yeah, that's certainly one thing that I've learned just from, from talking to other coffee companies is it's it's very scientific and it's really it's an it's mm-hmm. an art form, right? Whether it is like you said, roasting beans to a certain temperature, what the temperature of the water is, um, that you're making the coffee with, all these different things uh play a factor in what the, the end result is and you can really kind of tailor it and custom it to, to fit, you know, what your palate is or to, you know, to fit what you like. And, and that's the cool thing um, about it too. Cause everyone, yeah. you know, some people like to put a little cream in it, a little sugar, you know, whatever it is. So, I mean, and, and there's just, you know, a million different ways to, to brew it and, and actually be able to enjoy it. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things where it can literally be as simple or as complicated as you want to make it. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's, it, it, tru- it, it truly is, um, you know, it's whatever you want to make it. It's kind of there for your, there for the, uh, there for the taking, you know, you can have great coffee and use your coffee maker, your Cuisinart at home and have really good coffee, you know, or, you know, you can break out the beaker set and get, get all high school <laughs> chemistry class on it. And, you know what I mean? And have yourself a day, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's whatever you want. All comes down to time in the morning. Absolutely. That's right. Well, Clint, before I let you go here, man, um, where can people find uh, yourself and Skull Brew at? Sure. Uh, you can find me at uh, just Truths on the Stand on all the different social platforms. And uh, Skull Brew Coffee, if you want to check that out, uh, Skull Brew Coffee on some social platforms. Uh, I will say that we're not super active in those spaces, but the website is uh, skullbrewcoffee.com. You can get uh, all the different products we have there, all the all the different 
uh, single origin brews or roasts that we have there. And then the uh, backcountry uh, pour over packs are on the site as well. Awesome. Well, Clint, uh, thanks for taking some time uh, to hop on with me today. I know we've been kind of circling the wagons for quite a while, so I'm glad we were able to actually sit down and talk. Uh, I really enjoyed talking about, uh, you know, different tactics and, and things like that to kick things off. And then obviously closing things out with coffee and conservation here. It's been a great conversation, man. I appreciate it. Awesome, man. I appreciate you having me on and uh, keep up doing the good work, man. Appreciate All right, you. All right, Clint. Have a good one, man. You too. All right. Well, thanks again to Clint for <clears throat> joining me on the podcast today. I would also like to thank the partners of the podcast, Stone Glacier and Go Hunt, as well as 2% for Conservation. Uh, be sure to go out and support the brands that support this podcast and help make it possible. Uh, and if you're interested in learning more about 2% for Conservation, you can visit their website, fishandwildlife.org. And over there, you can see all the certified brands, including Skull Brew Coffee, uh, that you should support when you shop. I also encourage you guys to give 2% a follow on social media where they're going to post only positive conservation-driven content, so you'll certainly uh, enjoy that in your feed. So again, if you'd like to learn more about 2% for Conservation, you can look for them online on social media or at fishandwildlife.org. Thanks for joining me this week, everyone. Uh, remember, check out theaverageconservationist.com. Grab some sweet apparel, some sweet merchandise to help support conservation and uh, catch up on all the latest podcast episodes as well. So have a safe and happy Memorial Day this weekend. Uh, and remember that conservation starts with you.